Turn to Second Kings. Second Kings two. Charles Spurgeon is one of my very favorite, absolute favorite people in church history. Period. Um, I, you know, every time you read something about guy, that guy, it's something I've never read before. It seems like like another thing he did or something happened that was great. Um, and uh, we could go on and on about the great things he did. He preached to crowds of six to 7,000 people every single week in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. Filled the uh, balcony, everything, just amazing. But to show you how popular he was with the people, let me give you a few details regarding his death. When he died, Charles Spurgeon died uh, January 1892, London literally went into mourning, the city did. Nearly 60,000 people came by Metropolitan Tabernacle where his body was in a casket for three days just to pay him homage. About 100,000 people lined up in the streets as the funeral parade went by. The parade was two miles long to see uh, Spurge, the body of falling his hearse to the tabernacle, to the cemetery. Flags were flown at half-staff. They closed down shops. They closed down pubs. All this because the great Charles Spurgeon had died. Now, what happened to the You ever thought about what happened to the Metropolitan Tabernacle after Spurgeon died? What happened? With the great Spurgeon gone, all those people that were, he was so popular with the people and thousands of people lining up at his funeral. Did they close the doors of the church, never to reopen them again? Is that what they did? I mean, after all, Spurgeon's gone, right? Where do you go, where do you go from here, right? What do you do from here? Well, there was an interim pastor for a couple of years filled in while they were searching for another pastor. Um, but then they called another Spurgeon to replace Charles Spurgeon. That other Spurgeon was Thomas Spurgeon, the son of, of Charles Spurgeon. Charles and Susanna uh, Spurgeon had two twin boys, Thomas and Charles Jr. Thomas became the pastor. Both of them pastored, by the way. Thomas became the pastor in his father's place, and so one Spurgeon succeeded another. And by the way, he had a, he had a great ministry for 15 years, at the tabernacle there. Church did not close its door, doors just because the famous Charles Spurgeon died. Tonight we're in 2 Kings 2, a chapter that is all about the transition from Elijah to Elisha. That's what's happening throughout this chapter. Elijah was the great prophet of God through whom God works supernaturally. You saw that. He, so many supernatural things. He prayed for rain to stop, he, and it did. He prayed for rain to start, and it did. He uh, was fed by ravens. He saw a widow's son raised from the dead. He called down fire from heaven twice. Uh, he had the privilege of beholding the Lord in his glory to some degree as he passed by him. Uh, how do you replace an Elijah? You know, how do you carry on after that? You can, you can see people thinking these things. Put yourself in the time of Spurgeon. You can see his auditorium, his audience, his, his church, rather, thinking, who are we going to replace Spurgeon with? That's what we want to look at tonight. As we do, also in this chapter, we're going to discover four realities concerning ministry in light of this transition from Elijah to Elisha, four realities. The first is this. We must prepare others to do the work of the ministry. We must prepare others to, the work, to do the work of the ministry. Look at chapter 2, 2 Kings 2, verse 1. It came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take your, away your master from over you today? He said, Yes, I know. Be still. Elijah said to him, 
Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? He answered, Yes, I know. Be still. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Elijah took the mantle, took his mantle, and folded it together and struck the waters, and they were divided here and there, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And, he, and Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you, but if not, it shall not be so. And as they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and of horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. Verse 1 of this chapter is typical of the kind of thing that happens to Elijah. You see something already in progress, right? That's just how it goes with him. All we know is he's about ready to go to heaven. A few details are given. We aren't told why this is happening. doesn't say that anywhere. We're told it's the Lord's doing. We're told he's going to go up in a whirlwind, which, by the way, is a heavy windstorm he goes up in. Verse, one, verse 11 records that there's going to be a chariot of fire, chariot of horses, uh, will appear also and take Elijah to have Elijah's taken to heaven. Obviously, a supernatural event. We can't explain this fully. We can. <clears throat> I've had. I have many questions about this chapter. Very, uh, you know, as usual, and many questions unanswered. But then again, a lot of questions that we ask don't need to be answered. That's just our curiosity. But these things, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens in this chapter. But Elijah is greatly blessed at any rate at the prospect of not dying, and so he's going to go to heaven now. That is where all believers look forward to. Don't we look forward to that reward in heaven? We're going to be in heaven. Uh, Peter, the apostle, tells us in 1 Peter 1, 4, we have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven, it says, reserved in heaven for you. That's our hope. That is our hope. Elijah's destination is the destination of every believer. Now, his transportation was different, and his situation was unique. But his destination is the same. All believers uh, who know the Lord will go to be with him for eternity. Now, Elijah was not the only person to die in the Bible. Who was the other person? Don't know what you guys are saying, but it was Enoch. <laughs> uh, let me read Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. See, Genesis 5, 21 says this. Uh, speaking of Enoch, Enoch lived 65 years. He became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him, it says. God took him. The word took in Genesis 5 is the same word here in First and Second Kings 1.1 when Elijah is taken to heaven. And the two, the two share that unique privilege as to why they... They got to go to be, you know, straight to heaven, and in particular, as anyone's guest. We could say they were rewarded for their faithful work, right? Their faithful service to God, no doubt about that. These were faithful men. 
They went over and above the call of duty to be faithful, without a doubt, especially Elijah did so many uh, tremendous things for God. They also stood out from others in their generation, without a doubt, they stood out. But there were also other men and women in the Bible who were faithful to God, right, and served God and stood out in their generation, never taken up by the Lord in some unusual way, never, you know, having, they lived and died like everybody else. Um, you think of Abraham, you think of Ezekiel, Daniel, Paul, uh, just like everybody else, faithful to God, but die like everybody else. It's something you can think about, but I don't, I don't know that the reason why, I'll leave that reason with the Lord for right now, since I don't know what it is. But what's interesting is, there was a time when Elijah prayed to die. Do you remember that? In 1 Kings 19, he was very depressed, sitting under a juniper tree, and, he, and in 1 Kings 19.4 says, and Elijah requested for himself that he might die. <laughs> and he said, it is, enough, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm not better than my father's. And like I said then, Elijah was a man who got his prayers answered, but not this prayer. It never got answered. And Elijah has the rare privilege of never dying. Now, if he's one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11, uh, then he's going to die then, okay, and be resurrected three and a half days later, but I, I don't know. So today, at any rate, Elijah will go to heaven. That's what it keeps saying again and again in this chapter. This is his last day on earth. He spends that day with Elisha. Think about it. What would you do on your last day? If you knew this was your last day to live, how would you spend it? He spends it with Elisha. Well, this chapter, if, you've, if you, you can already tell from this, and if we'll read the rest of it, you'll see it. It's structured around geographical movement. A lot of geography mentioned. Elijah and Elisha travel from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho to the Jordan River. Later on in the chapter, Elisha by himself travels from the Jordan to Jericho to Bethel to Mount Carmel, to Samaria. Lots and lots of geographical movement through this chapter. Uh, and the first five verses, uh, they appear to be going to, or definitely are going to uh, Gilgal and Bethel and Jericho to see the sons of the prophets. They're going to see the sons of the prophets. Now, in light of what we know about Ahab, this sounds very strange, doesn't it? Sounds very strange because why are these prophets in these cities? Je- Jezebel and Ahab did everything they could to wipe out the prophets of God. But you remember 1 Kings 19 again. The Lord said, I will reserve to myself how many people? 7,000, right? That have not bowed the knee to Baal. So these prophets are a part of the 7,000 that the Lord raised up. And from the looks of things, they've established prophetic communities in these cities uh, in order to counter the worship of Baal and the influence of Baal. And so they called them the sons of the prophets. Now, the sons of the prophets are not the prophets of children. You know, my dad was a prophet. It's not like that. They are members of an association, a guild of prophets, usually associated with a prominent leader. And so that leader, by the way, is Elijah here. And so they have all these centers of prophetic activity. The Lord's directing Elijah to go to these cities. I'm guessing it's probably a farewell, farewell tour. He's going around saying goodbye to everyone. He's going to leave that day. He may have a final message to give them. It doesn't tell us all that information before he leaves. By the way, whoever thought Elijah was washed up in 1 Kings 19 is dead wrong because he's alive and well in, many, in more ways than one. And one way in particular is he is spending the rest, a lot of his time training prophets, especially Elijah. And, and they, they all know who he is and they all respect him. Now, what about Elisha, though? Every city they travel to, Elisha is asked the same question by the sons of the prophets. The question being this, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today, Elijah is greatly known, greatly respected by everyone. 
especially Elisha. In 1 Kings 19.16, by the way, the Lord had said to Elijah, Elisha you shall anoint as a prophet in your place. So Elijah was given the responsibility to train Elisha for the work of the ministry. Uh, and he's and ever since chapter 19 of 1 Kings, Elijah has been preparing Elisha for this day when he would leave. Now, all the prophets know Elijah is going to, go, going to be taken away. As you see, it's indicated in the chapter here, probably because they, I'm guessing they're being told by Elijah when he goes from city to city, or maybe the Lord revealed that to them. I don't know. They all know he's going away somewhere. He's been the greatest single influence on all their lives. Now, at each city that they go to, Elijah tells Elisha, stay behind, just stay here. I'll go. I, I've got, the Lord has told me to go to another city. I've got to go travel there. And again, unanswered question, is this some kind of a test that Elijah is putting forth to Elisha? I don't know. But whatever the reason is, Elisha is determined, he's resolved to stay with his master, his teacher, Elijah, until the, the very end, until he departs. People ask him, hey, do you know your master's leaving? And he says, keep quiet. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that. I'm sure he's very sad at the fact that, his, that Elijah is leaving. And he's going to be without him now. Now, this section brings us to a great truth. None of us are here forever. None of us are. Our ministries, whatever they are, I mean all of us, by the way, not just preachers. We think, well, the preacher, you know, he's got a ministry. Yeah, every Christian has a ministry, by the way. All ministries will come to an end one day by reason of death or unless the Lord returns first. And the question is, how do we keep the work of God going? How do we, in light of this fact, we're not going to be, can you think, think down the road, years down the road? Who's going to be in these seats? Maybe this, will, this, this church will be somewhere else, another building. Maybe no one will be in these seats. But if the church is still here, who's going to be in these seats? Not us. Who's going to replace us? How, what are we going to do? How do we keep the work of God going? Of course, God keeps it going. But what, is, what does he want us to do? He wants us to disciple people. We're to disciple people. That's what, that's what our job is. We prepare believers for the Lord's work, right? We equip them for the work of the ministry. The Lord has called his people to make disciples. That is what our job is. That's what Elijah did. Elijah was assigned Elisha personally by the Lord. I want you to, this guy's your assistant. Train this guy to do the work of God. And he does that. And it's a pattern throughout the scriptures. You're always, you're always preparing people for the work that God wants them to do, whatever particular work it was in the scriptures. Matthew 28, Jesus commanded that his people go out and make disciples, right? Make disciples of all nations. That's where we're often failing, by the way. We're to teach and train and disciple and mentor. That is a pattern throughout the scriptures. Think about it. Moses had his Joshua that he trained. Elisha had, Elijah rather had his Elisha. Jehoiada, a priest, had his Joash, a king. As a child king, he helped to guide him spiritually. Jesus had his disciples. Uh, Paul had Timothy, Barnabas had Mark. It goes on and on like that. And so this is the, this is the way it is. To, to, we're to disciple people. Now, here's my question for you. If you've been a believer for some reasonable period of time, my question is, are you discipling anyone? Are you discipling anyone? Are you in influencing anyone for the Lord, helping them to grow in grace? First thing you usually think of when you hear that is, well, I'm no theological giant, you know. I'm no Bible scholar. But we're not, we're not saying you have to be a Bible scholar to do this thing. We're not saying that at all. You just need to love the Lord and, know, and, and love his word and find someone you can help. 
to grow in grace, young, someone young in the faith, someone new in the faith, someone older in the faith who's been bypassed, that needs help spiritually, needs guidance. The need is great, without a doubt it's great. You know, believers are often remain immature. They are spiritual infants. They stay that way for a long time because no one has taken them to help them. No one has given them personal guidance. And I'm telling you, we've seen in this church, there's nothing like one-on-one discipleship. That is the best thing that we, we can do. Um, I believe it was uh, uh, Richard Baxter in the 1600s, the Puritan who had a church in Kidderminster, England, who said that 30 minutes of uh, spending time alone with one, with, with one person was worth 10 years of public preaching, he said. It's very important to disciple one-on-one. Elijah prepared Elisha to take over for him. What spiritual legacy are you going to leave behind? Think about this. What legacy are you going to leave behind? What lasting influence for the Lord will you have? Well, the last segment of Elijah's life was spent training his assistant, Elisha, for the future. You know, when we pass off the scene, someone's going to have to take our place. Someone should. Someone will need to fill the gap. Someone will uh, need to step in our shoes. Who's going to take that up? Who will take the idea, the, the, uh, the, the uh, duty of discipleship up? Who's going to mentor them? Who will obey the Lord to do this? All believers are given this to do. Uh, Timothy, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men. Entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the first reality. We must prepare others to do the work of the ministry. Secondly, the work of ministry can only be done in God's power. The work of ministry can only be done in God's power. Look at verse 7 again, 2 Kings 2. Now 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Elijah took his mantle and folded it together and struck the waters. They were divided here and there, so the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you when I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He said, You have asked for a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elisha went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had also struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elijah crossed over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. So here you have 50 prophets in training, sons of the prophets. And they're standing near the Jordan River. Elijah, ta- Elijah takes off his mantle, his cloak. He's got his cloak, and he folds it up. He strikes the Jordan with it. And uh, the water divides, and Elijah and Elisha cross over. Where have we seen that before? Moses, right? God opened the Red Sea for Moses. He crossed over. God opened the Jordan River for Joshua. They crossed over. And now we, we see it again. And when they cross over, Elijah allows Elisha one last request. He says, uh, what do you want for me to do? What, what, what can I do for you before I leave? This is it. This is the last thing. And Elisha wants a double portion of Elisha's, of, 
of Elijah's spirit. What he's asking for is the power of God. He's asking for the same power of God that resided on Elijah to be in his life as well. Now, is that an arrogant request? To ask for a double portion? of this? Is he trying to be superior to Elijah? I want to do more than you did. Actually, I think that the miracles that Elijah performed are twice as many, but that's not what he's asking this for. This goes back to the Old Testament concept of the firstborn. Deuteronomy 21 says the firstborn son should get a double portion of the inheritance of the father. That's his right as the firstborn son. That's what it says in the Old Testament. Elisha is a spiritual son to Elijah. He has the right to a spiritual inheritance. So he rightfully asks for this double portion. Now, when he does this, in the estimation of Elijah, this is a, this is a tough request. And this is, Elijah's a guy who knows all about making tough requests of God, right? He never asked for anything easy. And he says this in verse 10. Elijah says, that's great. If you see me when I'm taken, that request will be granted. Otherwise, it won't be. In other words, if you're truly committed, you'll be there when the ascension takes, when this takes place. When I leave, you'll be there, and that'll come to pass. And I'll say more about that in a minute. But keep in mind, Elijah, we have seen Elijah's a no-nonsense guy. He just tells it like it is. He tells it straight up. And uh, he doesn't mince any words, and he's doing that right now with Elisha. So a chariot of fire and horses appear, and Elijah goes up by a whirlwind to heaven, it says. You can imagine, you can only imagine how Elijah, Elisha felt at, 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 at watching all this. He's losing his friend. He's losing his mentor, his teacher, his trainer. And uh, he's got in an emotional outburst. He says, my father, my father, he says. Now, earlier, the prophets had called Elisha his master. But Elisha says, no, it's more personal than that to me. He's my father. He's my spiritual father is what he is. It's very personal to him. He was the one, Elijah was the one that mentored Elisha. So it's very personal. You know, when Paul uh, talked about the Corinthians believers in 1 Corinthians 4.14, he called them his beloved children. They're my beloved children, he says. And in verse 15, 1 Corinthians 4, he says this to the Corinthians, for you, if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, countless teachers in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. I'm your father, your spiritual father. Look to, look to him for, for guidance. Same is true of Elijah. He had poured his life into Elisha to the point that Elisha looked upon him as a spiritual father. That's often the case between disciple and disciplee. A lot of times you'll have a close relate, a kindred spirit that develops between the one discipling, the one receiving discipleship, because you realize that person is trying to help you out. And you love the other person you're, you're working with. And so you can see how distraught Elijah becomes. He's losing his friend and his mentor. And he tears his clothes in two pieces. He's going to see him no more. He's greatly saddened, and he feels like a fatherless child. So he says, my father, my father, the chariots of uh, Israel and its horsemen, probably referring, in the, he says that in the same line, by the way, as my father, probably referring to the fact that the real strength in Israel is not military might, which are symbolized by chariots and horses, but rather spiritual power, like the kind possessed by Elijah, who's now leaving. What are we going to do now? Well, there was one important article of, of clothing that fell off Elijah when he left, and that was his mantle, his cloak, verse 13 says. Now, in 1 Kings 19, again, I'm thinking about 1 Kings 19. When Elijah first saw Elisha, he was plowing, plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in the field. And verse 19 says, 
Elijah passed over to Elisha and he threw his mantle, he threw his cloak on him. That was symbolic of the fact that I'm going to, I'm going to be the one that's going to mentor you. You're going to be the one that's going to take my place. Very symbolic gesture. So and Elijah now sees the, the fallen mantle of, of Elijah and he takes, Elisha does, and he takes, he does the same thing that Elijah had done. He takes up that mantle and he strikes the Jordan River with it and he says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Where? Where's he at? And the waters parted for him, just as they had for Elijah. And then the sons of Israel bow, and they show respect. The same respect they showed to Elijah, they show to Elisha as well. And, and this could possibly be the reason why Elijah did, uh, why Elijah wanted Elisha to be there, be there for that ascension. Because how else would he have known that the mantle had fallen? How else would he have known to, to take up that mantle? And to, and to see, by the way, taking up that mantle validated Elisha as the true successor to Elijah. And it validated the power of, of, of God in his life as well. So Elisha is, Elijah is gone. And uh, the great prophet's no, no, no longer there. I mean, you can't, you can't get with the great prophet now, Elisha, and, and ask him for advice anymore. It's over with. He's gone. You can't walk with him anymore. You can't follow him anywhere from city to city. It's over with. You can't draw from his ministry experience. What's he to do? Well, it's time for Elisha to stop depending upon Elijah and start depending on who? God, right? Start depending upon the Lord, the God of Elijah. Elijah is the necessary human instrument used by God to disciple Elisha, but Elijah is not, Elijah is not God. These two names are so confusing. Same together. Elijah is not God. Elisha must learn to look to the Lord now. You know, the power of God is not reserved for spiritual, certain spiritual giants alone in the world. We look at great preachers and all that. We think, wow, they got the power of God. I don't. I'm just a regular guy, right? It's not reserved for them alone like an Elijah. It's not reserved for just a guy like Charles Spurgeon. Um, you know, the power of God is needed in the lives of Sunday school teachers. Um, there was a guy that was, uh, uh, was a, a guy by the name of Mr. D- Mr. Edward Kimball. Anybody know Mr. Edward Kimball, by the way? Nobody knows him, right? I didn't think so. Do you know D.L. Moody? Everybody knows D.L. Moody, right? Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher that led D.L. Moody to Christ. See, the power of God is needed for Sunday school teachers, like an Edward Kimball that nobody knows about, right? It's needed for, uh, because you can have the great influence, think of the great influence you can have on your students in a Sunday school class. It may look like they're doing nothing, they're a bunch of brats, but one day one of them may grow up and serve God in in a way you never thought possible, right? You know, nursery workers need the, the power of God, yes, who care for babies so their parents could sit in the auditorium and hear the word of God preached. That's very, don't ever think your job as a nursery worker is not important, by the way. It's very important. power of God is needed when you witness to a co-worker, someone maybe you just met. The power of God is needed when you give biblical counsel to someone. No believer can do, can work without the spirit of God, without the power of God. Can't do it needed by every believer to accomplish his work, no matter how unnoticed it may be to everybody else what you do, nevertheless, you need the power of God. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We all must rely on his power completely, or there's not going to be any lasting fruit. There's a third reality in ministry. Some people learn the hard way in ministry. Some people learn the hard way. Look at verse 16. The sons of the prophets said to Elijah, Elisha, rather, behold now, there are with your servants 50 strong men. This is after the ascension. 
We have 50 strong guys here. Please let them go and search for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him on some mountain or into some valley, and he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him until he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sit there for 50 men, and they searched three days but did not, did not find him. They returned to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? <clears throat> then the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold now, I'm sorry, that did end in verse 18 there. Um, you know, it's, they didn't fully understand what had happened. They just didn't get it. I mean, they, they didn't know he had been transported to heaven. They knew something. He went somewhere. They didn't know where. Uh, they only knew he'd been taken away. Now, maybe they felt like Obadiah did in 1 Kings 18. Uh, the, you remember Obadiah, the man that feared God? And Obadiah was talking to Elijah, and he said this in 1 Kings 18. You know, it's going to come about when I leave you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you. I don't know where. And so he was afraid God might take him somewhere. You know, Elijah kept disappearing, right, and going to different places. And maybe the prophets were thinking that too, the sons of the prophets. We don't know where he went. Maybe the Spirit of the Lord took him somewhere, or maybe they thought he died. They didn't really know where he went. But Elisha knew. He knew what had happened. And when they requested that they send out a search party for Elijah, he said, no, that won't be necessary. But they insisted, no, we got to do this. Insisted so much that Elisha didn't have the heart to refuse him. He said, go ahead. Knowing they were going to fail in their mission, they were never going to find Elijah. So they went out for three days, a fruitless search, and no results at all. And Elisha said, see, I told you so. I told you to listen to me. You didn't do it. You know, some believers are headstrong. You can give them counsel until they're blue in the face about what the Scripture says, and they don't listen. They don't listen. They have to learn the hard way, right? They have to learn the hard way. They're convinced often of the rightness of their position. No, I think I can do this thing. Yeah, but it's going to get Scripture. You can't do this thing. You know, it's not going to work for you. And so even though people warn them and talk to them and speak to them and tell them, they don't listen. They've got a better idea. The only teacher they're going to learn from is experience. That's the only one they're, they're going to learn from. They're going to learn no other way. Wouldn't it be better to learn from by taking wise counsel? Some people learn the hard way. So there's three realities we've seen so far. Number one, we must prepare others to do the work of the ministry. Number two, the power of God is needed. Number three, some people will learn the hard way. And number four, our ministry will be a blessing to some and a curse to others. Our ministry will be a blessing to some and a curse to others, verses 19 and 25. Two miracles take place in this last section that further validate Elijah's a ministry that God has called him to do this, his authority as leader, of the new leader of the prophets. But these two, miracle, these two miracles are also going to teach us a fundamental lesson concerning ministry, and that is our ministry is a blessing to some and a curse to others. Yes, it is. Both are true. First of all, the blessing of ministry. Look at verse 19. The men of the city said to Elisha, Behold now, the situation of this city is pleasant as my, as my Lord sees, but... The water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new jar and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. He went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. There shall not be there from there any death, death or unfruitfulness any longer. So the waters have been purified to this day according to the word of Elijah, Elisha, which he spoke. Now, Elisha is staying in Jericho at this time. He's staying in Jericho. 
there's one serious problem in Jericho, and the residents come up and they tell them what it is. They say, look, we've got a problem here. The water supply is bad, really bad. That word bad is also translated evil in most references in the Old Testament. Um, but this water is of bad quality. In fact, the crops are not growing. The land is unfruitful, it says. Actually, that phrase, the land is unfruitful, means uh, the land is bereaved. The land is miscarried is the actual meaning. It's really a bad situation. So whatever the problem is, the water is ruining the crops. And so he performs this miracle. And this miracle is similar to the one that Moses did in Exodus, where he, the Lord showed him they had bitter waters they came to, and the Lord said, hey, I've got a tree here. I want you to cast it into the bitter waters. It'll become, it'll be, the waters will be healed. They'll become drinkable. It's similar to this miracle where Elisha throws salt into the spring, and the waters are purified. Literally, they're healed. Same word used in Exodus. They're healed. But it's not Elisha who heals the waters. Did you see verse 21? Thus says the Lord, I have healed these waters. It's God who does this. Salt may have been an external symbol, but the Lord is the one who heals the waters. Now, what's interesting about all this is this. This city, Jericho, was cursed by God back in Joshua. Joshua, in Joshua 6, Jericho is put under a curse. And Joshua says, after they destroy the city, <clears throat> he says, uh, you know, don't, nobody should build, re- rebuild Jericho, because if you do, you're going to pay for it with the loss of your two sons. That prophecy is fulfilled in 1 Kings 16. We saw it when we were in 1 Kings 16, in the reign of Ahab. But now this curse has been removed. The Lord chooses to bring blessing to the place formerly cursed. That's what happens in ministry. All the time, it's the same pattern. People formerly under the curse of sin are delivered by the Lord. They're blessed because of it. Lives once under the dominion of Satan are now under the dominion of the, uh, of, of the kingdom of his dear son. They're transferred to the kingdom of his dear son. He, can, he heals the lost, right, with salvation. He heals believers. Believers can do things that ruin their lives, but God can heal, bring healing to that situation. He can restore you when you're broken by sin and make your life a blessing again. It can happen. Yes, it can. And so those who know, or know Christ are blessed. They're blessed in many ways. That's what the ministry does. It brings blessing. <clears throat> but there's also the curse of ministry. Look at the last miracle in verse 23, the curse of ministry. Verse 23 Then he went up from there, Elisha went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going by the way, young lads came up from the city, out out from the city, and they mocked him, and they said to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. When he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 42 lads of their number. He went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Now, we read the story. You know, we, t- we think, this is insane. This is shocking. How could God kill 42 innocent children? That's what we think. You know, just because they called Elisha Baldy, right? And so God's going to kill all these people? That seems a little bit of an overkill. Seems outrageous. Some translation have, trans- translate this phrase, uh, young lads, as young children or small children. Uh, but I definitely do not think that is the case. I don't think these are little grade school children coming out, making fun of a prophet, and then God says, I'm killing all these kids. I do not think that happened at all. The word for lads here is to be translated in the light of the context. And, and it has a range of meaning. We've talked about this word many times. It has a range of meanings from small child or child all the way up to a young man of marriageable age. Okay, it's got that range of meanings. 
And given the circumstances here, I do not think these are small grade school children playing, you know, some kind of a game. I don't think that at all. Why do I think that? Number one, they are from Bethel. Did you see that? They're from Bethel. Bethel was a bad place with bad people. That was a place where Jeroboam put one of his golden calves. The other was, was in Dan. Put one of his golden calves for people to worship, and then and the city of Bethel became a, a city of idolatry. Thoroughgoing pagan city is what it became. Now, under the influence of Elijah, they start a company of prophets there in that city. But that by now, this city has been inundated with paganism. These people are thoroughgoing pagan to the core. This is what he's dealing with in this city, okay? Number two, Elisha is outside the city, and the young people come out of the city, all they're out of their way to mock him. They come out of the city to mock him, out of their way. They see him, they recognize who he is, and they came out to ridicule him. Number three, to mock a prophet of God is to mock God himself. You might as well be mocking God himself, mocking his message. You, you must understand these people hate the Lord, okay, in Bethel. They hate the Lord. They hate his prophets. That's how it is. They make fun of his bald head, and they say, go up, meaning they might be meaning to say, go up, get out of here, like Elijah left. Get out, you get out of here, too, or maybe just get out of this city, one of the two. Number four, there are 42 of them, more than 42 of them. We don't know how many. This is a mob out of control, okay? This is a mob of 42 people, or not more 42, but more than 42. They aren't going to a Little League baseball game here. There's a bunch of people out there in a wild mob. Number five, this reminds me of the captain and his 50 men, the three captains and their 50 men in, in the chapter 1 of 2 Kings, who were coming to arrest Elijah with the intent to kill him, probably. I personally believe that Elisha's life is in danger in this section here. I believe his life's in danger. Number six, I agree with Roger Ellsworth, a commentator. I think he's got the best comment of all. Ellsworth says this, We must not think of these young men as nice, polite fellows. These were young thugs. I believe that's right. These were young thugs. We would probably not miss the mark by much if we thought of them as the ancient equivalent of the gangs that roam streets in our major cities. That's what I think. So it's not, is it, is it out of the realm of possibility to think of this pack of people as more like the Bloods or the Crips or the Latin Kings or somebody like that? I think these guys are bad guys rather than the little children at play. At the very least, I think these are older teens who are bent on mocking and harming Elijah, this group out of control. In the light of what I just said, Elisha, Elisha curses them in the name of the Lord. He has no idea what that means. He just gives them a curse. Well, out of the woods come two female bears. They come out of the woods, and it says they tore up 42 of them. We have no idea how many people there were. 42 of them were tore up, it says. Now, let me ask you a question. Would you be afraid if, say, 50 or more young thugs came after you, stalking you, mocking you, threatening you, and, and that kind of thing? Would you be afraid? I think all of us would be, right? Yeah. Did they all die? I'm sure many of them it did. It says here, some may have escaped with severe injuries. All were torn up, it says. I sure, want to, I sure would not want to meet a bear, <laughs> you know. So th these people were cursed by God, not blessed, because they rejected God. They rejected his prophets. They rejected his message. Bethel had been doing this for years. These, there are people who will never experience God's blessings because their goal is to resist God's message. Their goal is to resist God's messenger. 
And so they're going to be cursed. You know, oftentimes you can present the message of gospel to people and they'll reject you outright. Such people are under the curse of God. Now, we don't curse them like an Old Testament prophet, but God will curse them. That's his business. In eternal hell, he'll curse them. So we're a blessing to some. Our ministry is a ministry is a curse to others. 2 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16 lays this out very clearly. It says this, God manifests through us, he manifests through his people through us, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ um, to God among those who are being saved. Two groups. We're a fragrance of God to Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we're an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. In other words, some people are going to be blessed and some are going to be cursed. When they hear the message, whether they receive it or not, the Lord wants to bless people with his truth, but some, many people insist on getting a curse instead. So Elijah's gone. Who's going to replace him? Elisha's. Charles Spurgeon is gone. Who's going to replace him? Thomas Spurgeon. How about you? Who's going to replace you when you're gone? Have you ever thought about that? Who's going to replace you? Are you preparing anyone to take over the work of the Lord? Are you, are you preparing anyone to do that, or are you abdicating your responsibility? Somebody says, well, that's the leadership of the preacher. That's the, that's the responsibility of the preacher, rather. That's true, but it's also the responsibility of every believer. And the words of Paul to Timothy are just as true for you as they are for me. It says, you therefore, my son, 2 Timothy 2, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Entrust them to faithful men, it says. As we go to the Lord in prayer, ask yourself this question, who am I discipling? Who can I disciple? Who can I help grow in grace? Believer, there is someone, there is someone you can work with. There's someone you can encourage. Someone you can help to do his work. That's your assignment, by the way, this week. Let's have prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time together, for your word again. Help us to take it seriously, Lord. We pray that we will be about the business of making disciples, uh, knowing, Lord, this is what you want us to do, knowing this is how your work continues. We pray we'd be about that business. We pray you give us the power to do that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.